reorient myself to what, what's most important for me to work on, how do I stay focused, how do I prioritize things. The, the first task that I have is I review my mission statement. So I have a mission statement to kind of remind me this is why I do what I do as a dad or as a, as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor. And then the second thing I'm supposed to do is to read through my life plan. And I say I'm supposed to do it because I often don't. It's a little bit longer, so I, I often skip that and I get to the next one, which is clear out the inbox. But this last week, I hadn't read my life plan in a few months. I felt a little bit convicted, and so I didn't do it Monday, I didn't do it Tuesday, but finally by Wednesday, I actually pulled out my life plan, and I reread it, and the first page of the life plan is a eulogy. So it's, it's me basically writing, when I go out of the game, whenever I pass away or the Lord comes back, here's what I hope I've done with my life by His grace, and, and I'm reading through it, and I'm like, man, that that's what I want. That would be a life well lived. And I will say some of it's a little manipulative. So it's like I'm trying to trick God into doing things. So I'll say, I would be like, you know, Rob celebrated 80 years with his wife, you know, something like that. And it's basically my way of saying, God, let me live to be 102, you know, stuff like, like that. But I read through this thing. And I was like, boy, this is what I want. But how? Like, that's the big question. As you lay out a life and say, what would be a life well lived before the Lord and for the good of others? How? We're going to look at a text today that's going to lay out a principle that is both um, pervasively biblical. It's all over the Bible, but it's also just kind of common grace, common sense wisdom. And what we're going to do is we're going to overlay that principle on the, life, uh, the lives of some people from 800 BC that got it wrong. We're going to see how powerful this principle is by looking at people that didn't apply it well, specifically, here's the principle. You reap what you sow. We're going to look at the principle of sowing and reaping. We're going to look at the power of sowing and reaping, and we're going to look at the practice of sowing and reaping. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with us? Hosea chapter 8, page 755 in the Bibles in front of you. We'll read the whole chapter here together. This is God's holy and helpful word. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it, it is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, 
For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. Feel free to grab a seat. I always try to pick a cheery Mother's Day text. So this year it's Hosea 8. Welcome. The principle of sowing and reaping, it really is all throughout the Bible. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Proverbs 22, 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Proverbs eleven eighteen: the wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. It's all throughout this Bible, this principle of, of sowing and reaping. It, it, it's all around us in nature. It's, 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 there's echoes of it in lots of different religions and, and just common, common wisdom. And behind this is this, this principle playing out is that you reap what you sow. If you plant corn, what do you expect to get? If you plant corn, it's all right, I don't know, it's hard. It's, hard. it's like, is this the part where you're asking this like rhetorically or are you asking us to wait? No, help me out. If you plant corn, what do you think you get? Corn, you plant an apple seed, what do you think you get? Apple, apple tree, apples. You plant squash, what do you get? Sorrow. You get sorrow because squash is disgusting. <laughs> and really what you want to do with that is actually repent. Um, probably going to get more hate mail on that comment because you're a bunch of squash lovers. But, but the principle is this. You're going to reap what you sow. So it makes sense to be really wise and really thoughtful about the things that you plant. Hold on to that because we're going to unpack a, a few different things to, to really consider to, to spend time sowing. But there's something really interesting in this text, in verse 7, this, is, this chapter's really hinged around, that they sow the wind, but they reap the whirlwind. So you don't actually reap what you sow, you actually reap more than you sow. You don't just get out what you put into something, you actually get more out of the thing that you put in. And that can work out both in positive and negative ways. In this text, there's a lot of really negative things. They sowed the wind, they reaped a hurricane give you a positive way that this works out. My friend J.D. taught me this. He's a financial advisor, loves Jesus, just a great guy. And I was doing a series on, um, like a five-week series on Jesus and money, and uh, it's probably a bunch of years ago. And I said, J.D., can we get together? And you've worked with lots of people. And if you had like five to seven weeks in front of a church, what would you want that church to know around money and possessions and how to enjoy them to the glory of God, but not be owned by them and just wise biblical financial practices and all those things. And it was really helpful, really helpful conversation. And one of the things that he, he taught me is this thing called the rule or the law of 72. And the way this rule works out is a simple way of doing the math to figure out how long does it take your money to double um, in, in an investment. So he says, okay, if you take 72 and you divide it by whatever the anticipated return, the average return is, that will tell you how many years it takes your money to double. And so he says, just to make the math simple, let's do 7%, which is a fairly predictable 
conservative way of understanding, if you're in the stock market for decades, not like the last week, but for decades of what your money might return. And so we'll say 7%, so you put that into 72, and it takes you then 10 years for your money to double. So let's say you're an 18-year-old. And you worked a job, and somehow you're able to save up enough money. Maybe mom and dad did a dollar-for-dollar dollar match, and you're able to invest into a Roth IRA. You maxed out your Roth IRA for $6,000. You're 18 years old. You're going to retire when you're 68. The rule of 72, you get a 7% return. It doubles every 10 years. If you had $6,000 that you put in when you're 18, how much is it worth when you're 68? It was great. The first service, someone said, a lot. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. It's like $192,000. You get out more than you put in. You know, and this is not a sermon on good financial planning, although feel free to file that away. And so, let me give a Mother's Day application. So, Mom, I mean, you're so busy. Diaper after diaper after diaper shuttling kids around to school and events and showing up at games and violin lessons. You're doing laundry and you're, you're working in the home and you're working outside the home. All the band-aids you've pulled off to try to like care for little cuts and scrapes. All the times in the middle of the night with a the, with the, with the, with the little infant cry and going to the other room and swaddling and holding and rocking and comforting. All the times you, 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 you made the great, incredible, ridiculous sacrifice of like a slumber party. <laughs> Amen, parents. <laughs> like, I don't know how many times we're like, okay, if we do this, then you got to promise tomorrow. You're not going to be knuckleheads. Yep, we promise. And then the next day, ah. You're sowing so much, but do you know what you're reaping? Adults that you hope are like socially well-adjusted, that have healthy patterns of relating, that trust themselves and trust others, that have some psychological resilience, that know how to, to read because you sat there and you read book after book after book. Kids that grow up into adults that hopefully they, they love the Lord and they love their church and they love their city. But what you're sowing isn't just for them. So you're not just raising your kids. You're actually raising your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids. And you're raising generations of neighbors and influences. They grow up into adults. You, here's what you're sowing, a legacy. You reap more than you sow. In this text, very negative example. I want to encourage the mamas in this room, the very positive one. Principle is clear. We see it all over the Bible. We see it in life. Here's the question I had. So why, like I know this. So why don't I take it more seriously? Like why wouldn't I do it more then? Give you a suggestion. Um, I think it's because of time. There's a gap between when you sow and when you reap. So you sow more, you reap more than you sow, but you actually reap after you sow. You put the seed in the garden with the hope that one day it will sprout something you tuck your kids into bed so that one day they, 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 they grow up into mature, 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 healthy adults. There's this gap between when you sow and when you reap. The results come later. I go back to my buddy that when um, 
they were able to send all their kids off to college. And he, he recounted this story. He said it was really interesting because we had a bunch of friends and they would be like, man, you're so lucky that you're able to, to provide this for your kids. And this guy loves Jesus. He believes in the grace of God for sure. So put that through this, put that, this comment I'm about to say through that lens. He said, he goes, yeah, but you know, frankly, it wasn't just luck. He goes, we all made the same money. We all went through the same experiences. He goes, what it actually was was millions and millions of tiny decisions in our 20s and our 30s and our 40s. You put that wherever you want, but it's just trying to illustrate that that the discipline it takes to sit there and sow the right things when you don't have a right now reward, it's challenging and it's tricky. And we see this lived out in Hosea 8 with people that were called to sow the right things and yet they didn't get the right now reward and so they began to shift what they did. We're going to see the power of sowing and reaping in a very negative way in this text. I talk to my kids when we, um, we talk through relationships and dating. I have all teenagers, and as they kind of got into their, their later teen years, and we talk through dating, one of the things I've said is I go, dating, it's like nuclear power. I go, with it, you can power a city or absolutely destroy it. My hope is it scares them and that they, will, they won't date until I find them an appropriate spouse is what I'm hoping. We'll see how that works out. But it's true. Sowing is powerful. They sowed the wind. They reaped a hurricane. This chapter is going to show what to sow by showing what not to sow and the terrible outcomes that happen when you get it wrong. Um, and it really comes out of what we'll do is we'll talk like a, a first mistake that then creates all the other mistakes. Kind of a first order thing that if you mess that up, there's a bunch of stuff that's gonna flow from it that's really, really destructive. Here's the first mistake. I'll illustrate this with something I planted a couple years ago. So I had this little shade spot in my garden. I needed to get something that would fill in um, without a lot of maintenance. I didn't wanna have to deal with it. I just wanted to kind of fill in this area so I wasn't constantly weeding this, this, uh, this area of dirt underneath our deck. And so um, I, I went to the, the nursery and I, I didn't want bamboo, but I wanted something kind of had that vibe to it. And so I actually found this dwarf um, bamboo shrub. And, and I, I was like, I didn't know bamboo is crazy big and it, and it spreads like, wildfire and all this stuff. It could just take over a yard, but this stuff was supposed to be different. I looked at the, the little, uh, little tag on it, and it said, yeah, it just gets a couple feet tall, maybe spreads to about five feet, becomes a nice little compact shrub, and I was like, perfect. That's exactly what I want. I did not read the label carefully enough, though, because it does get just a couple feet tall, but it gets five feet wide, and then what it does is it sends out another root about three feet under the ground and sprouts up another shrub that then gets five feet wide, and that shoots another thing out that goes about five feet wide. And so I planted this a few years ago, and now I want to sell my house because it's constant curse from yanking this stuff out. Like I would dig down into the dirt, and it would send out these really thick roots that were like feet underneath the ground. They'd be horizontal, right? And then it would shoot out the, the bamboo from it. And now I'm pulling, I'm pulling it out of my garden, but then it's in my lawn. And now it's trenching my lawn for me as I'm yanking this stuff out. It is my nemesis. It's my nemesis. Here's the moral of the story. Read the label. <laughs> You plant the wrong thing, you're going to spend your life yanking weeds. They planted the wrong stuff. Set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Why? Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So we're thinking for covenant, it's the, the kind of language that's used in, a, in the context of a marriage that 
that God became their God. He'd made Israel his people, that he had ransomed and claimed them. He'd, he'd marked them out. He'd given them a land and a place. He gave them good laws to follow, good commands for their flourishing. And then we see this in, in verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. But at the end of this chapter, it says they, they have forgotten their maker, not saying the one who created them, but the one that made them a nation and made them a people. They're so self-deluded, they can say, oh God, we know you, of course we do. We're so religious. Yet there's not a relationship. Hosea, if anything, is the story of a chronically unfaithful people before a faithful God. Then verse 3, Israel has spurned the good. They traded what was right and good for what was destructive. Let me give you a background to this text. It comes from about 800 years before Hosea's time out of a book called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. They chose death. That's this picture. It starts with this vulture soaring overhead. The vulture comes where the carcasses are where there's about to be one. At this time, God's people, Israel, they were in a national crisis. There was global superpowers around them, and they were about to be conquered and carried off into exile. Why? Like, well, what's the mistake they made? God ceased to be important to them. It's always the first cause of everything else. God ceases to be weighty to them. God ceases to be significant enough to them. He was there, but he had really become like a national mascot. I've quoted this a number of times by David Wells from God in the Wasteland. This will probably be the, I don't know, maybe today I'll mark the most I've ever quoted anything repeatedly in our church. And so the danger of that is we might get numb to hearing it, but my hope is that in quoting it again, it'll reinforce the message that he's saying, and it would just give us a moment to pause. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood spilling from its true wound. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, His grace is too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ too common. Another quote. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. 
Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. And we see it in this text. We see it in the first thing that they forsook about who God actually is. We're going to look at four different things as we go through Hosea chapter 8, and they're all negative consequences of God ceasing to be God to them. They, in each of these, they spurned the good. Verse 4a, the first part of, of verse 4, they made kings, but listen to this, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. God had been so pushed out of the, the periphery of their lives that they were saying, God, we don't really need you to help us figure out how to run our nation. We don't really need you to figure out how to run our lives. We're doing just fine without you. And so in this situation, there's, they're, they're appointing leaders without any reference to what God wants or God commands or God desires. Here's what is happening, I would suggest, in verse 4. It's this, this little phrase, they, they're functional deists. God's people had become functional deists. They were people that believed there's a God, but that God was very distant and pretty much disinterested and the day-to-day -day reality of their lives and their choices. I came across this article by uh, Barry Cooper on deism, and he talks about that deism it arose out of the 17th and 18th century from England, and it really came from the, the soil of what, what's known as the Enlightenment, a time period that really prizes the, the ability and wisdom and goodness of humanity without regard to God, that we're, we're, we're really logical, we're able to solve really big problems, and if we commit ourselves to these things, we can bring about really a golden age for our world or society, something that would really uphold science, really uh, minimize the influence of God. And so deism really sprung out of this, and maybe you've heard it phrased like this, that a deist would say, no, there is a God, but it's like a grand watchmaker. He designed the watch of the cosmos, he wound the clock, and then he took his hands off and he's just letting it go. Let me give you a way of understanding this kind of human-centered way of living. Barry Cooper says it like this. He says, yes, I believe... Now, he's not saying this about himself. He's saying this is what a deist might say. Yes, I believe in God, but only one who respects my personal space. When I can keep at arm's length at all times, the deist God doesn't have anything too dogmatic to say about the way I should live my life that's for me to work out with my own power of reason. They made kings, but not through him. They appointed princes, but God knew it not. He's saying, you're running your lives without reference to me. And that's not just wrong and offensive to God. The consequences of it are massive. Cooper goes on and says, like he says, the effects of emotionally or physically absent fathers has been very well documented. Fear, anxiety, our ability to form healthy relationships, the wound goes very, very deep. How much deeper is the wound when the Heavenly Father is like that? Distant, unfindable, disinterested. Make a religion out of reason, and that's the kind of God you end up with, aloof, distant, someone who wants very little to do with you. But the living God is a father, not an absent one, but an intimately involved one. Israel forgot that. Oh, let's be honest, I mean, I, I forget that. You might forget that. And when we do, we begin to have to run our own lives. If there's not a God who is there, then I need to figure it out. I have to solve it. They are living without the presence of God. 
And so what I want to do with each of these is let's reverse it. So if we want to plant like something healthy, let's reverse what they did that was so unhealthy. Let's learn from that lesson. So here's what you do. Plant and cultivate a presence of the living God in your life. Came across a book um, probably 20 years ago by a guy named Brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence of God, and it radically transformed how I do dishes. So he was a monk, and he was assigned kitchen duty. He hated it. He was like, I'm more important than this. I don't want to do this. And then one day, God finally led him to a text of the Bible where Jesus talks about the, 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 this tendency to like clean up the outside of your life while the inside's a mess. And so what you should do is like clean the inside of the bowl first, and then the outside will be clean. And so that's what I started doing. So I, every time I would do dishes, I always start with the inside. I scrub the inside. I get the inside clean. Now that I have four kids, I tell the kids to scrub the inside side of the dish and get, you know, and it's, and when I'm doing it, it's this idea of like, this is what God does for me in Christ, that he's cleansed me and he's changing me. And it just is a way of tooting in, even in the process of washing a dish. And we're cultivating that. Like when you got up this morning, you know that, that, that everything is cohered in Christ, that your life, your breath, everything, the fact you experienced a mini resurrection when you woke up. And we began to drive and you, and you see the trees and you see the mountains and you see the clouds and you feel the sunshine. You go, oh, the highest heavens can't contain them, but what a God must this be like to create such beauty. And you look at other human beings and you go, oh, those are image bearers of God. And you just, you're just trying to clue into some sense so that you don't get, so you don't drift. It's like this gap that happens. When, God, when you are an infrequent visitor to the things of God, he ceases to become familiar to you. He becomes a stranger. Let me give you some really practical, practical, practical things that you can do. Commit to a local church and show up as often as you can, weekly if possible. It's really hard to drift very far when you're constantly before the things of God. Now, it's not guaranteed. We're going to see that people during this time, they were, they were very religiously busy, so your heart could be far from it, but, but show up regularly. We did this thing as a church a number of years ago. We just said, hey, let's, let's commit to doing 10 tens, 10 minutes of Bible and 10 minutes of prayer a day. It's really hard to drift far from God when his word is in front of you on a regular basis. None of these are magic solutions. It's just very practical ways of keeping the, the, the presence of God before you. Find your people. Find people that want to love Jesus and you want to love Jesus. It's really hard to drift really far when you're around people that are talking about Jesus. It's just really hard. And when you put these things together, when you, when you sow these types of things, it's incredible the stuff that can come out of it. On Easter, um, it's just a wonderful Sunday of getting to celebrate seven baptisms. Uh, three of those baptisms were uh, my wife and I's uh, three youngest kids. And one of the cool things that was happening that you wouldn't know the background on the story, but it was so cool, is when we were baptizing my oldest son, Owen, um, I was thinking about when our church started. It started 15 years ago. We met down in the Fairhaven Public Library. And he, Owen was the first kid to get dedicated as a new church. I remember Pastor Ethan holding him and praying for him and, and this reality of him hopefully one day taking ownership of his faith. And so as I'm baptizing him, I'm thinking about this kid that got dedicated 15 years ago. And over those 15 years, just this regular exposure to the things of God and the people of God and how that sows in. And one day what you pray for is that it produces a harvest of faith and belief. Practice the presence of God. Israel is running their own lives. That's the beginning of verse 4. Israel then goes on to reinvent who God is. That's kind of the last half of verse 4. In following, we, 
with their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. These idols that they created, they're not just God replacements. When you think of idolatry, they're, they're uh, God reimagined. They're, they're refashioning who God is in their own language, in their own preferences, in their own opinion, in their own likeness. When that happens, the consequences are, are massive because God actually ceases to be God to us. In, in this text, here it is. God is distant, and then God is impotent. He is not strong. He is not mighty. He is not powerful. And so they go from their idolatrous aspect of who, like these reinventions of God to then going on and trying to broker like, like a national peace treaties with Assyria. And the sad part about that is they go to Assyria to say, hey, like, don't attack us. We'll pay you tribute. We'll kind of bribe you so you can kind of leave us alone. Assyria is ultimately the nation that conquered them just a few decades later. They sowed the wind. They reaped the whirlwind. And part of it is this. If God is distant and then God is not strong, then you have to establish your own strategies for survival in this world. And that's what happened. Now, we could apply this broadly for sure, but I'm going to keep it in the political sphere because that's not a touchy subject at all. Um, where are you looking for hope? What is distressing you as you look at national headlines? Now, it doesn't mean these things don't matter, but is it creating so much anxiety, so much worry, so much hostility? about which candidate gets elected, which court decision goes which direction, which policy gets put in place. When God is not sovereign, someone or something else has to be. And one of the things we have seen, um, I think, on full display, one of the tendencies is to make that politics. Came across a blog post by Trevor Wax called Dethrone Politics, and he references a survey published in 2019 by the Public Religion Research Institute. Listen to this line. The majority of Americans would rather have their children marry outside of their religion than outside of their political party. The first service goes, ooh. Let me say it again. The average American would rather have their children marry outside of their religion than outside of their political party. How do we get there? That is insane. Well, God isn't present and God isn't powerful. So he really can't be the one to, to save. He can't be the one to protect. He can't be the one to guide. And so I have to look to something else other than God. And that's what they did. They broker these deals with the Syria. They, they, they're, they're wedding themselves to this, this language of, you're like a donkey. The, the, the language here is actually a wild donkey looking around for someone to mate with. Who can I hook up with? Who can I, who can I get in bed with that can fix all of the stuff that's broken? Because God can't. Trevor Wax goes on and he says, like he says, when a sizable segment of the population says that political affiliation matters more than religious identity, we're witnessing something greater than mere polarization. We're watching the transmutation of politics into religion. For many Americans, it's not that politics supersedes religion, but that politics is their religion. This doesn't mean, of course, that traditional religious practices and doctrines have been abandoned. Many of these Americans happily attend church or go to the temple or adopt disciplines meant to better their lives. But at the fundamental level of orienting and ordering their lives, for many people, political convictions have replaced religious belief. 
politics has a stronger and wider effect than religion. So what do you do? How do we, so we want to cultivate the presence of God. Okay, so keep God in front of you, but we want to cultivate the, uh, an awareness of the real God. We need big God theology. We need the sovereignty of God that he is reigning and ruling and king. I started thinking about what if Israel would have remembered their own prayer book before they actually went to broker a deal with Assyria. Psalms are the prayer book of, of God's church at this time. So let me just Psalm 2. Oh, this is a great psalm. I mean, they're all great because they're all God's word. This is a great psalm. Listen to this. As you think about all the chaos, this is why we need a big God. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courses. And the nations are raging and saying, oh, we're going to take over. I love this line. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God is God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is present, and he is beyond powerful. As we get into verse 12, we see another negative outcome of God just ceasing to be God, the weightless of God, when he gets marginalized from our lives. They're living without the presence of God. They're living without the power of God. And here they're living without the word of God. Verse 12, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Literally what it's saying is that they would be a stranger to him. They're just so unfamiliar with my word that they can't even recognize it in their day-to-day lives. And this couldn't be more pertinent. There are so many claims of truth. There are so many claims of what is right. There are so many claims of what tends towards human flourishing about so many complicated issues. I mean, this was on display this last week in an area that is very personal to many of us based upon our stories and our backgrounds. But we've, with this, the, the, this kind of pre-issued leakage of what might happen with Roe v. Wade And in all the headlines and all the conversations, the question is, is what's loudest? What gets to drive it? What gets to declare with authority, this is what is right? We could apply that to so many areas of our culture. We could apply it to how how do we understand gender? How do we understand policies around refugees? How do we engage with in righteous ways what the Bible calls the quartet of the vulnerable? How does this equip us to engage with all of these cultural hot? Let's just take, how do we think about judgment? How do we think about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Oh, that feels so strange in such a pluralistic world. So they're living without the presence of God. They're living without the power of God. They're living without the word of God. And sadly, they're living without the grace of God. Verses 11 and following, 
Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Down in 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, this thing that was supposed to be a declaration of God's grace and forgiveness, it isn't. It says, they sacrifice meat and eat, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. What's interesting in this text is they're multiplying altars. They're multiplying, multiplying. They're exceedingly religious people. They're doing all sorts of religious activities. They're showing up. They're singing the songs. They're doing the stuff. But what we find from Hosea is their hearts are far from God. And then they're missing out on God. thought about uh, someone I, I know really well, a guy I knew really well. Every Sunday morning, seven, he was at the 7 a.m. mass every Sunday morning for, for my entire life. He'd show up in the suit. He knew all the, the, the prayers and responses and things to do. He, he had all the motions. And then he would leave the church. And God would stay in the church and he would go about his life. And Monday through Saturday, he was not a very nice man. He broke his family. He was corrupt in business. He ended up in prison. When he got out, he was back there at the 7 a.m. service again. He spent his life doing all of this religious activity, but he missed out on God. What could be more tragic than that? Life without the presence of God, life without the power of God, life without the Word of God, life without the grace of God. This is not great. But it doesn't have to stay that way. That's one of the great things about texts like this that can be such warning texts. It's way of the ways to understand them. I know they're tricky and challenging. It feels hard, but actually God is coming faithful with faithful wounds like a friend to try to, to, to either affirm or to correct us as we go into a text like this. So what can we do? Let's talk about the practice of sowing and reaping. What can we do? Press on and plant the right seeds. Press on and plant the right seeds. I planted um, two dogwoods in my backyard last summer. Um, I enlarged some of our garden borders and wanted to plant these trees partly because my wife, she loves dogwood. She loves the flowers that come. It kind of reminds her of Hawaii. And so I plant these little white flowered, you know, dogwoods. They sit there for a long time. And uh, I don't think they're called flowers. I don't know, the brackish side or something like that. And uh, so they, they, you know, they grow. But, but I just planted them last year, which means they're pretty puny still. And one of the other reasons we planted them is we look down into our neighbor's backyard, like into their kitchen. And we're constantly, you know, it's that awkward. You're on the deck and you're like, hey. And then you see each other like 10 minutes later. It's like, hey, how, how many times do we got to do this? You know, we just like agree to like, hey, we like each other, but we don't have to talk to each other because we're like, my deck's like over your back fence. And so, anyway, so we, we planted these so they get bigger, but they're really small. And yesterday or a couple days ago, I was looking at my window. I was like, I was pretty annoyed that like, why didn't I plant these when I moved into this house eight years ago? I was really frustrated. But then I thought of this Chinese proverb, one of my favorites. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. It's now. If you planted the right seeds 20 years ago, enjoy the orchard. Keep cultivating it. Enjoy the fruit of its harvest. Enjoy the beauty of what you're looking out on. Rest under its shade. Just enjoy it. Just keep pressing on. I want to affirm you in that. This room is not full of people that have just so marginalized God that they've done none of these things. Just keep planting those things. If, on the other hand, you haven't, start today. Plant the right seed. Plant the seeds of the presence of God and the power of God. 
and the Word of God and the grace of God. It's that last one to which we'll finish. One of the huge dangers in the principle of sowing and reaping is that we could walk away from this time together with a key strategy for life, but never rising above what we do to what God has done. We always have to ask this question in the church because Christianity is not obsessed with self-improvement. It's obsessed with Christ. So we want to ask this, what difference does Jesus make in light of the principle of sowing and reaping? All the difference in the world. Here's the good news as we look at this principle. The story of the gospel, the, 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 the story of how God sent Christ to, 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 to be born as a baby and to live the life that we were meant to live and to die the death that we deserve and to rise triumphantly from the grave. You know what it's a story of? That we get to reap what Jesus has sown. That Jesus sowed obedience and we get to reap his righteousness. That Jesus was sown into the ground and we get to reap his resurrection. That Jesus did all of the right things on our behalf for a bunch of people that wander and are dopey and rebel and forget him. That we might be called the children of the living God. That we might, instead of having to eat the sandwich we made and sleep in the bed that we made and live with the regrets that we can't unravel, we believe in a God, not just that gives us good principles, that, that in his grace and his kindness, you know what he can do with the hurricane? He can calm it. This guy I was talking about lived almost his entire life without an awareness of the grace of God, and right before he died, he died of cancer, right before he died, he had a moment of sanity. And he finally saw his need for the forgiveness of Christ that all the times of showing up to a church, all the times of sitting in a pew, we're never going to save him. And he called out for forgiveness. He right now is reaping eternal life. He right now is reaping paradise, not because he earned it. And this is what makes it drastically different than a concept of karma or a concept of, oh, I'm just going to get out what I put in. Now, I don't say this to minimize applying the biblical principle. Oh, goodness, no, apply it. Apply it. But don't be owned by it. And don't be crushed by it. Thanks be to God that we are not stuck where we have failed to sow correctly. That we have a God of divine reversals. That we are saved and forgiven and purchased because of what Christ Jesus has done. That's the true altar on which we are forgiven. Not our performances. That's not, that's, we, we can go away from this place with God's good wisdom for us. But without fear. Without regret. Without being owned by shame. Without being worried about how quickly we can apply we reap what we sow, even more than we sow. But most wonderfully, we, we, we reap what Christ has sown. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is a tension beyond belief to try to live in the place of your principles. But understanding the banner that flies over all of them is your grace. That where we fail to apply your word rightly, there is one that has done it perfectly and he's done it on our behalf and we lean into him, not through our performance, but through faith. 
we thank you for your principles that guide us and teach us how to sow these truths deeply in us. And I, I ask that God right now, through the work of the Spirit, you would make yourself real to us, that you are present, that you are strong, that your word is good, and your grace is unbreakable. Thank you most wonderfully that we get to reap through faith in Christ what he has earned. What more could we want? In Jesus' name, amen.